You're listening to the teaching ministry of Discovery Church in Bristol, Tennessee. For more information about Discovery, or for more free audio content, please visit discoverybristol.com. Now, if you guys are ready, we're going to have a little fun. Can you cue the music, please? For the game show that is sweeping the nation, real or fake? Okay, hold on. All right, cut, cut the music off. Clearly, you guys have never been to a live taping where you're the audience for a game show, as we're doing this morning. So here's just some minor instructions you need. Whenever you're, you're at a taping for a game show, when the title is said, everyone yells it out together. Got it? So after I say the game show sweeping the nation, I'm going to point to you, and you're going to yell out, real or fake, just like that, with lots of enthusiasm, right? Are you ready? I'm not sure if you're ready. We're going to try it again. All right, let's hit the music again. Game show card ready. Let's go. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to welcome you to the game show that is sweeping the nation. Fantastic. Here's how it works. I'm going to put some questions up on the screen. It might be an item, an animal, an email, a news headline. Who knows? You have to tell me, is it real or fake? Are you ready to play? Okay, good, good. All right, here we go. Question number one. The daughter of a Nigerian prince emails you. She's inherited $4.2 million and is offering you 20% to use your bank account to help transfer funds before she moves to America. Is it real or fake? Let's see the answer. You're correct. (laughs) I guess I wanna, uh, okay. Here we go, here's an animal question. The North American horned lizard can spit blood from its eyes for a distance of up to five feet. Is that a real or fake animal? You say it's real, let's see the answer. It's real. Can you imagine the first animal, like the first lizard that figured out like they had this ability, right? Like those are like, you should see a doctor. Here we go, next question. Last week, a pro baseball player successfully stole first base. Is that real or fake? Let's see the answer. It's real. Due to a change in some rules in this particular league, for the first time in history, a ball was fumbled on a pitch or something happened and the guy stole first base without ever putting a bat to ball. All right, next question, here we go. Cigarettes are the most sold item at Walmart stores across America. Is that real or fake? Let's see the answer. It's bananas. Ah, America's a lot healthier than maybe we supposed. Next question, another animal question. The Pacific Northwest tree octopus is facing extinction. Is that real or fake? Mm, mm, Real, fake? Let's see the answer. It's fake, it's not even a real animal. Not even a real animal. Even though it's got a very convincing Wikipedia page, the Northwest tree octopus is not real. Next question, here's a headline for you. Man calls police to report hate crime. Neighbor's cat looks like Hitler. Is this real or fake? Real or fake news story? Let's see the answer. That's fake. I just made that up. But that totally seems like something that would happen today, doesn't it? I'd give that a like and a share if that came across my time feed. Here we go, last question. Last year, or I'm sorry, uh, I'm sorry, next question, next question. Here's another news headline. Entire plane is deboarded due to a passenger's emotional support squirrel. Is that real or fake? Let's see the answer. It's real. 
There she is. Can you imagine being on that plane? Like, I kind of hope it's a Ray Stevens, like, squirrel revival scenario where the squirrel is loose on the plane. They'll have to get out. I don't know, though, because I didn't read the article, just the headline. Here's our last question. You get this message on Facebook. It says that your account has been hacked, and uh, you need to check it out and hold your finger on the message and forward it to your entire friends list. Is that real or fake? Let me see the answer. It's fake, so you can stop sending it to me, right? Like, if you get this, it's not even real. I've had that same message from, like, three different people this week. You don't have to send it, it's fake. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is how you play... There we go. Yes. Now, why today do I talk about the idea of real or fake? Why do we play this game show this morning? I think because in our day and age, it can be more and more difficult to decipher what is real and what is fake. Um, and, and let me just give you a couple of examples, rather not just the ones that we talked about, but I don't know about you, but this week on my, uh, any social media I was on, it looked like every friend I had had aged by like 50 years, right? Anybody else have this experience? And I didn't know if they did some sort of Captain America time travel thing, but all of a sudden like this guy that I knew in high school should be my age is like 70 or 80. And then it turns out that it was this new app that everyone's doing called the Face app that changes your appearance and it's all over social media. And then we find out that this isn't just like any old app, it's probably owned by the Russian government and they're really spying on all your data. Like all of this craziness came out this last week. Uh, thinking of fake news, in 2017, the Collins Dictionary named that their word of the year. Even though fake news is two words, they said it's our word of the year. That's how popular this concept became as more and more things that turned out to be fake have been shared online and have been shared even on the news. Um, in fact, there was a study that was done that showed that fake news on social media Fake news travels 100 times further and 100 times faster than news that is true. And so that puts us kind of as culprits too, that we're the ones sharing and we're the ones pushing out these fake stories often. But if you've been around, this is something that we just kind of get consumed with. We'll, we'll hear something and before we even decide like what to think on it, we have to ask the question, is this real or is this fake? And I think it's only going to get harder and harder. In fact, I listened to a podcast a while back where they talked about a new technology where they can record someone's voice and get a recording of their face, a video of their face, and then they can match the two together with that little sample of their voice and their picture and actually create a video of someone saying things that they never said. And so you can type in the words that you would want this person to say, and then there's a video of them saying it. And so these are the horrors that we get to imagine in the future of, did this politician really say this thing, or is it just a fake, like, made-up CGI caricature of them? We live in a world where we have to decipher what is real or fake all the time. And I don't think this is a new thing. It feels very 2019, but I think this has been around a while. In fact, we're going to see some of it happening in our chapter today in Acts chapter 17. But if we can get beyond this idea, I think what is more important in this is when we come across an issue or a news story or any one of these things, rather than even asking real or fake, what becomes harder is, well, where do I stand on this issue? Whether it's a real thing or a fake thing that's going on, what is my opinion about it? What is my stance on this issue? So we're going to talk about all of this today in Acts chapter 17. So we wrapped up last, uh, last week. Matt told us the story of when Paul and Silas are on their missionary journey to a city called Thessalonica. And in Thessalonica, they go about as they do. They go to the synagogue. And there at the synagogue, they, they preach the word of Jesus to the Jewish people that are there. But the Jewish leaders of this synagogue, it says that they got upset about Paul and Silas's word. That the more they heard about Jesus, the more upset they got. And so these Jewish leaders, what they did is they went and they tried to incite a riot. 
They go out into the town and they find what, what my version, the ESV version says, the, the wicked rabble of the town. And they get these guys all hopped up. They form a mob and this mob goes and it tries to get Paul and Silas, but they've already snuck away. All they can get is Jason, the guy that was housing them. And so they pull Jason, some of the other Christians out in the middle of town and kind of hold this like impromptu trial and counsel in the middle of their city. So the whole place is just in an uproar. There's a riot and things are getting nasty all over the word of Paul and Silas and the Jewish leader's reaction to it. So I want to look at this a little bit. I want to look at our cast of characters here in this kind of mob scene before we move on to the next piece of this chapter where we're really focusing this week, but we got to understand this, this last part. So these uh, Jewish leaders, they hear this word from Paul and Silas, and it says that uh, they get all the town together and they tell these men that in verse 7 of chapter 17 that they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another King Jesus. So that's the sort of message that they get together to attract people to say like, hey, listen, they're trying to dethrone our king. That's not patriotic. Like that's gonna change too much stuff. We need to find these guys and boo these guys and just like get a whole crowd together. Everybody's booing Paul and Silas, right? And it says the way they did this in verse five, it says that they went out to get the wicked men of the rabble. So here we have this, this group of people. We don't have a lot of details on them other than just they're the wicked men. Like we don't know what makes them wicked. They're wicked and we know that they're rabble, which is just one of, a fun word to say. And for whatever reason, always makes me think of cartoons. Like I don't know why I just think of cartoons and rabble. It's maybe like Barney Rubble more than rabble, but that's what goes on in this weird brain of mine. So that's who we have. We have this mob of wicked people. And you get the feeling they don't even know what's going on. They're just going along with the mob. But then we have the Jewish leaders who kind of incited this mob. They roused them up, which makes them our what? Our rabble rousers, right? Which is another fun phrase to say. And I've just been waiting for the day when I could put it in a sermon, rabble rouser. Uh, but here's the definition. If you don't know what that is, here's the definition of rabble rousing. It is a person who speaks with the intention of inflaming the emotions of a crowd, typically for political reasons. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Do we ever experience that in 2019? Yes, all the time we see this. And so here's what we see in this old, old passage happening in their day, is these Jewish leaders, they get upset about what Paul is saying. Now, here's my question. What is their motivation? Why are they so upset about what Paul is saying? I don't think it's that they just totally disagree with it. I don't think it's there like, well, he's just preaching stuff that is nonsense, it's not true. I think somewhere underneath, these guys got a little bit afraid. In fact, it tells us here in verse five that they were jealous. It says that they were jealous of what Paul and Silas were saying. So inside of them, something is going on saying like, they have this message, this message might bring attention away from our message, and our message has devised this system that we find very comfortable, that we've found ourselves on the top of, and so they're threatening a little bit of our position and maybe our privilege with this message that they're bringing. We've gotta stop this message. So underneath, I think for the Jewish leaders, what's motivating them is this fear. This fear of if what Paul and Silas says is true, then everything for us changes. All our heritage, all of our traditions, all of that changes, and we've got a lot to lose if there's a new system. And so I think they're motivated by fear. And so then what they do is they go to the wicked rabble of their community, which I would just assume like the wicked people are not the people we want our religious leaders doing business with, right? Again, we don't know what makes them wicked, but it just all seems underhanded and shady. And so these guys, it looks to me that they're allowing their fear 
to compromise their faith, that they're allowing what makes them afraid to then compromise the things that they believe. In fact, for a Jewish person to bring the charge that they've brought and say, like, these guys are threatening the Caesar, they're saying there's another king besides Caesar's. A lot of the Jewish people felt like Rome and Caesar was an enemy of their country because the Roman people had taken rule over Israel and it had them under oppression for many, many years. But these guys are now willing to kind of compromise that position and say, well, they're threatening our king. And so their fear has compromised their faith. So then we look at the rabble and we don't know like the individuals with this, but I just get the feeling that it's a lot of herd mentality or like mob mentality is just taken over with this group of people. And they're like, what are you guys yelling about? I'm angry about that too. And so they just all like get a part of this big mob. It just grows and everybody's angry. And I get the feeling like they probably didn't just sit down and say like, okay, so the Jewish leaders are telling us this, that Paul said this thing. Can we back that up? Is that even true? Did he say that? We don't hear a lot of that happening just a mob all of a sudden happens and a riot ensues and the whole town is turned upside down. So what is the motivation behind the crowd? What would it take for a person just to be thrown into this so that then they're willing to do whatever? I feel like for this crowd, the crowd let them, their convictions be determined by the crowd, right? Like this mob of people, the individuals in this mob, let their convictions, what they believe, be determined by the crowd, by the direction everybody else is running in. So you see the Jewish leaders may be motivated a little bit by fear and that lets them compromise their faith. And then we see the individuals, the rabble and this mob. And it seems to me that they let the crowd determine their convictions and they decide, yeah, this guy, Paul, he's dumb. And this story he's telling us about Jesus, like that's fake. And all of this happens. So in the meantime, Paul, it says he gets out of town, like him and Silas, they just get out of Dodge. We don't know like if this is a, a miraculous escape. We don't know if it's like a mustachioed escape or like put on a disguise and like sneak out. All we know is it happens at night. And it says in verse 10 that the brothers, these are other Christians they met, immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, which is a town about 50 miles away. And it says that when they arrived there, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them beforehand believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. Sorry, I read that weird. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing. So here's what happens in Berea. It is like night and day. In Thessalonica, a whole riot starts trying to stop the word of Paul and Silas, but we get to Berea, and these people just receive the word with eagerness. And Luke uses a word to describe them, a word that we hardly see in the Bible, and it's this word noble. I don't think Luke even uses it that often, but he uses this word noble to describe the Bereans. And scholars have kind of debated, like maybe this means that they're from a noble family, like they're rich and wealthy, they have a big name. But most people seem to agree that what makes them noble is the way that they receive the scriptures. That Luke refers to them in this way because the way they reacted to Paul and Silas's message about Jesus. Because it says that when they heard it, it says that uh, they received the word with all eagerness and then they examined the scriptures daily to see if the things that Paul and Silas were talking about were true. So they go back to the Bible. They go back to their scriptures to determine if these words about Jesus are true. And if we can kind of put our brains in the mind of a, a Jewish person in the first century, man, they would have had this whole long lineage, this whole uh, mess of scriptures that they had been studying and that they had based their lives on. But all throughout these scriptures, there was this kind of lingering promise 
of one that would come, of a prophet that would be greater than Moses that would come and he would speak God's words. And this lingering promise is still lingering because they hadn't figured out who that person was or if that person had come yet. And so now Paul comes in and he's talking about this guy, Jesus. And I can only imagine that for the Bereans, it starts filling in these gaps in their faith where there's this promise from God, there's this prophecy from an old prophet and it appears to be fulfilled in this person of Jesus. So I'd love to be there that week as daily, it says, they begin looking through the scriptures and they're probably talking to each other about these things. And you just have to wonder what light bulbs are going off in their brains as they see things like this early verse in Genesis 3, where God is talking to the serpent that has just tempted Adam and Eve to sin and rebel against God. And God says to him, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, but he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. They read that and are they then saying like, could this have been this Jesus? Is he the one that will crush the head of the serpent of Satan? Or do they think of the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, three, where God says to Abraham that he'll bless Abraham and then curse those who curse Abraham and that all of the families on earth shall be blessed through Abraham's line. Do they begin answering that question of this blessing that's coming? That was actually a person. It was Jesus who came through Abraham's line. Or do they hear the echoes of the words of Moses in Deuteronomy when God says through him that I'll raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So they begin to hear the things that Jesus said a little bit differently. When Paul says, Jesus told us to love our neighbor, do they realize that this is not just Jesus speaking, it's God's words in his mouth. Do they think of the prophecies in 2 Samuel? where God talks to King David and gives him this promise and says, when your days are fulfilled and you die and you're gathered to your fathers, I'll raise up an offspring after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He'll build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And yet they're looking around and who's on the throne? It's Caesar. And so now they start saying, well, could this have been the king? But he's dead. Does that mean that this throne is a different kind of throne, this kingdom as a different kind of kingdom? Are they piecing all of this together? Do they remember the words of the prophet Zechariah? When he says, I'll pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas of mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Do they realize that this prophet this promise when the Messiah, God's son, was then crucified. And is there a moment where they say, what have we done? As Jewish people, what have we done? But as humanity, what have we done? We've executed the son of God. Do they hear these things and then apply it to themselves? Or last of all, do they remember this promise from Isaiah in 53, five, where he says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. That they realize that this piercing was the nails in Jesus' hands, but through that comes healing. Do they put it together that Jesus was the sacrificial lamb, just like all of the sacrifices they were instructed to do that came before, but he is the greatest sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice, the last sacrifice needed to cleanse us of our sins. We can only imagine what that week was like for those Bereans, what those days were like as they went back and heard Paul teach and then looked through the Bible to see if it was true or not. But we can see that the light bulb goes off for them. 
And so even though there might be some elements of fear saying, well, this is gonna change in my life if I follow this Jesus, they go after it. And even though there's obviously a crowd in their world in that day that is saying, no, this is the way that we need to go. We need to go this other way. That's not the patriotic way. That's not the Roman way or the right way. They say, no, but this is the way that the Bible has instructed me to go in. Maybe they looked at all of these promises in the Old Testament, along with the over 300 promises found throughout the Old Testament that are fulfilled in the person of Jesus, and they realize this is an undeniable claim that this man, Jesus, was the Son of God, and he died for us so that we could have life eternally with God, our Creator. And so I think in that moment, they're, they're probably bowled over by Jesus. And we can see that many of them, high-standing Greek women, many of the Jewish people, that they want to give their lives to Jesus. They begin following that cause. I can only also imagine, though, that they have a new respect for their holy scriptures, right? I can only imagine that as they go through this and look at a book that was written over the course of a thousand years, written by over 20 different people with 300 promises by all of these different people over this many course of years, and then to see that fulfilled in one person, that they realize maybe there's more going on with their scriptures. That maybe this isn't just a book. It's not just a record of rules. It's not just some happy morals to, to guide us in life, but that this is the word of God. So I can only imagine that as they hear Paul's words and they put it together in their minds that they see, man, Jesus is the son of God and our scriptures are God's word. And so they change their lives based on it. What makes the Bereans a noble people? I think it's that they let their beliefs be determined by the Bible. They don't let their fear determine their faith. They don't let their convictions be determined by the crowd. They let their belief be determined by the Bible which is something that I hope we can look at in our lives and say, man, I need that too. In a world where you don't know what to believe, where you don't know where to stand, I hope that we can realize we have God's word with us and that we should stand in it, that we should stand in the words of Jesus. But sadly, the reality seems to be a little bit different for many Christians in our world today. Whereas the Bereans that said they daily started going through the scriptures, I looked at some research this last week put out by Lifeway that shows that uh, a little less than half of Christians in America, of Protestant Christians in America, engage the Bible on a weekly basis. So anywhere from like every day to once a week, a little less than half Christians are doing that, which means more than half Christians in America are not engaging with the Bible even on a weekly basis. And that could be anywhere from less than once a week to a couple times a month to not at all. Which probably means that less than or more than half of Christians in America aren't even going to a church where the Bible is preached, where they can hear the scriptures. And I read that and I kind of was a little convicted myself to try and think like, am I like the Bereans? Am I engaging in scripture every day? And as a pastor, like I, I am, I kind of have to, but then for me, sometimes it just becomes like business, right? Like I'm just trying to get my job done. Like I gotta write this sermon or whatever, but am I really interacting with the scripture? Am I letting God talk to me? Am I letting his word wash over me and determine my priorities? Am I letting what God says determine my principles? Am I letting this sway the way that I go in life or where I stand on an issue? And if we are not interacting with it and interacting with it regularly, I don't think we'll have the ability to do that as well. I don't think that we can figure out what our principles should be or our priorities should be based off of this word if we're not engaging this word. And so my challenge to myself as well as you is that, man, we have to begin engaging God's word even more. 
because of the direction of our culture, the direction of technology and things happening, we're gonna find ourselves every day questioning new things. We have to figure out where we stand on these issues. And I would challenge us again that we not let our stance be determined by fear or by a crowd, but by the word of God. I wanna throw out just another little bonus stat that I learned in this research, and that is that children growing up, they did a big study with parents that had children that grew up and then left the home, and they asked these parents, like, has your child continued to pursue their faith and and adulthood and all these things? The number one determining factor they found in children that continued to pursue their faith into adulthood is that they read the Bible growing up. And that for me like, was a big one because I want that for my children, right? Like my daughter, Cora, she's gonna be baptized later. That's our, our hopes for them is that they grow up and not just now do they understand their faith, but that they retain it and continue to pursue God and adulthood. The number one determining factor is not that they're coming to church regularly, though that helps. Not that they have an incredibly funny and, and attractive youth pastor, though probably that helps, right? None of those things. The number one determining factor is that they read the Bible growing up. And how do they learn to do that? It's from their parents. How do they get the Bible? It's from their parents. How do they see the example of it? It's from us. And so again, I'd encourage us in that we as a people, we have to be in God's word if we wanna call ourselves followers of Christ. This uh, last week uh, uh, with Cora's birthday and our daughter Everly, she had a birthday recently too. We're doing the whole car seat car swap. Any parents have to do that? Where like they age out of one car seat and you gotta figure out the next car seat for them and then cram all of this in your tiny car and figure out how all that works. It's a total nightmare. And so like I read one article that said something about like the earth can't digest plastic, plastic can't really be recycled and all these things. And then I realized car seats are made of plastic But then I read another article talking about car seats expiring. I don't know how these go together. Like if plastic can't expire, but the car seat can, I don't understand. I think there's a scam going on, but I'll save that for another time. Like, I don't think that's really sermon material. Just take it to say that I hate car seats in that whole world. I love my children and want them to be safe, but the car seats are a nightmare. Some parent out there feels me. No amens, but that's okay. Uh, So what do I do? I'm looking for the new car seat. What do you do? You go on Amazon, right? I got to find one that's tiny, like small, can fit in the car. I've also got to like figure out, is it safe and all this? So what do I do? I don't just hit buy. I read the specs of it, right? I read like, well, how big is it? Like, what does this involve? How does it work? There's a video. I watch the video. And then what do you do next? If you're on Amazon looking over a product, what do you do? You go to the reviews, right? How many stars does this product have by how many people? So now I'm reading over what other people have said about it. And I realized that I spent a large amount of time just figuring out if this was the right car seat for us. But then as I'm working on this sermon, I'm getting a little bit convicted. Am I spending as much time in the Bible determining if these things are right for my life? Am I going through the reviews, talking to other people? Well, what are your thoughts on this passage of scripture? What are your thoughts on Jesus? How many stars do you give this review? Am I putting as much effort into where I stand, into my principles and my priorities, into my relationship with Jesus? And I hope, like I I feel just a little convicted on this. I hope that's where we are today. And it's not me making anybody feel guilty, but that the Holy Spirit is guiding us to where we should be. And so Paul and Silas, at the end of this story, chapter 17, verse 13, they get to Berea and things are going great for a couple days in Berea. And then it says, but when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea, also they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. And then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. 
Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So this chaos follows Paul and Silas, follows this message of Jesus from Thessalonica to Berea. The easiness doesn't doesn't last for long. The chaos follows, and now these new believers have to face this crowd that's telling them, you're wrong. You're not patriotic. You're, you're following the wrong things. These guys are telling you lies. This is going to upset everything and turn the world upside down. But I think these noble people, these new believers, I think they knew how to handle it. I think they knew and they heard these other stories not to let their fears compromise their faith, not to let the crowd determine their convictions, but they let the Bible set their beliefs. And that's my hope, my prayer for us as well, that we would do that. And we can't do that if we're not in the Bible. And so that's our challenge for me, for you, for all of us, that we get in God's word this week, but then we take action on it as well. We hear from this story, we hear about Berea just like one more time in the New Testament, and it's in relation to a guy named Sopater, who is from Berea. And we find out that this guy, Sopater, I think I'm saying that right, that he started following Paul and Silas. He started going on mission with them. So not only do the Bereans hear the word and and internalize the word, but they begin taking action on it. When Sopater heard what Paul said, when the gaps of his faith were filled in, he says, I'm part of this. I'm going on mission with you. And so not only should we read God's word, but we have to take action on it. We have to get our feet planted in it, but then we have to walk forward with it into this world. So as we move into a time of communion this morning, I hope that that's on our minds of where we are in relationship to God's word, of where we are in determining something, whether it's a true thing or a fake thing, where we are in determining where we stand on a position. Are we listening more to our fears or the crowd or are we listening to God's word that has been proven over and over and over again in the Bible? And so Jesus, the last night with his disciples, he, he gathered at the Passover meal, he broke bread and he had a cup of wine with them. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. He's saying, take time when you gather together, whenever you gather, remember what I said. Remember what it is that I did on the cross. Even though they didn't know what was happening yet, we know now that that bread represented more than bread. It was Jesus's body broken on the cross and the wine was more than wine. It represented his blood from his body that was pierced, his blood that was poured out as a sacrifice for us. And so as we come together this morning, we remember that we go back to his words as we take communion together. And so in a moment, a plate's gonna come around and it's got pieces of bread and in the middle there's juice. You can dip the bread in that and the, and the juice and then eat that. And Jesus asks us to do that in remembrance of him. So as we gather together, anyone who considers, you consider yourself a Christian, a follower of Christ, I wanna invite you to do this. But before you eat of communion this morning, maybe just take a moment and ask God if your priorities and your positions are right. Or better yet, what you're allowing to determine your priorities and your positions. As we remember Jesus's words and what he did for us, reflect on how much we are in his word and how much we are taking action on his word. And if you find that maybe fear or the voice of the crowd is just too great in your life, I'd encourage you to take some time just to confess that to Jesus and to make a plan to do right, to make a plan this week to get more in the word, whether it's by buying one of our scripture journals that we have back at the coffee bar, whether it's by listening to that like Bible app on recording as you're driving to work, that we make plans to be more in the word of Christ 
as our world changes and gets more and more confusing so that we know where we stand, so that we know that our positions, our priorities, our beliefs are determined by God's word and nothing else. So let's let all that, I know it's a ton. I think I said a bunch right now. Let's let all that be our focus as we remember what Jesus did for us.